0: Welcome to the What She Said podcast. My name is Candace Sampson. I am currently in the middle of divorce proceedings, working towards my psychology degree, dating for the first time in 20 years, raising three teenage girls, a senior dog, and two guinea pigs. And in the middle of all this, I thought it would be a good time to buy the What She Said media property. What could possibly go wrong? I've been in the trenches with women across Canada for over a decade now, oversharing on the Yummy Mummy Club, Life in Pleasantville, and on all my social media pages, and I totally do it for the gram. And now I'm coming to you on the radio at 105.9 The Region and on this podcast. Apparently, I have a lot to say. So let's get rolling. I first met Renee Seiler a decade ago at a Disney Social Media Moms Conference when she spoke to the audience about resilience and overcoming obstacles. I instantly loved her no-nonsense, get-out-of-your-own-way approach to life. Over the years, we've seen each other in person a couple of times at other conferences, but mostly we are Facebook friends. So when Renee asked her white friends on Facebook why it was so hard to talk about race, I reached out to her and asked if she would talk to me about it, because frankly, I have problems talking about race. But in order to do better, I must know better, and that means getting uncomfortable and getting educated. We recorded this just after Ahmad Arbery, but before Amy Cooper and George Floyd. To say that it feels like the world is housed inside a powder keg with a lit fuse right now is an understatement. I feel lucky that Renee talked to me because she doesn't owe me a thing, but she is and always will be, I believe, about building bridges. I want to be a better ally and friend, and so this conversation with Renee is the first of many I want to have. And some of it is awkward as I struggle to understand or grasp what it means to be a Black woman and how I can best help stop systemic racism. I'm learning, and I hope you will too. Meet Renee Siler hey Renee I am so glad to have you here today hi how are you uh, I'm a little bit nervous I'm a little bit nervous yeah it's, it's you know this conversation that we're going to have today has mm-hmm. been playing in my head a lot <laughs> um, so I let's just set it up for people you you put it a status on Facebook Mm -hmm. And it said, real talk, real question, specifically to my white friends. Why is it so uncomfortable to talk about race and racism? And I immediately messaged you and said, (laughs) we need to do a podcast about this. (laughs) Um, Because there's a lot here. And it's it's important to people to to be able to have these conversations. And I think that's what we're so lacking in this world.
1: I mean, it's... It's really, really difficult to have this conversation about 200 plus years of history and race and racism to cover this in in the time that we're going to be here. But it does need to be, we have to start somewhere. We have to start somewhere. And I think we should start by telling people that I'm actually black. I mean, unless they in case they didn't, you know, figure
0: that part out,
1: but yes, I'm African-American. And,
0: and I think uh, also worth pointing out that you are American and I'm Canadian. So we're also coming at this from a little bit different lenses as well, as far as our politics are probably concerned and absolutely. our, our view,
1: worldview. Yeah, I would agree with that. So, you know, what started, listen, I've, I come from a background, you know, because we met over a decade ago, and my background was journalism, television news. And for a long, long time, I really walked the line. I kept my opinions to myself, so on and so forth. But in the last 10 years or so, I've really become more vocal. And um, lately, like in the last year, six months to a year, I've become even more vocal because I, I can't in good conscience, just sit by and watch what's happening. I'm a mother, you know, I have a young black son. Well, he's not that young, he's 22 almost. I have a daughter. I mean, the, the things that are happening now not only impact me, but them as well. So I am actually concerned about our country, where we are as a country. And while things are perhaps... Um, somewhat new and shocking to a lot of maybe perhaps the population, you must understand that African Americans have known this underbelly of this the reality. Population.
0: This reality.
1: That's right. This. So when um, the most recent one, um, Ahmed Arbery in, in Georgia was killed, um, you know there were a lot of people who were like, "How can that be? Like they just can't believe that." And not one black person said, "How can that be?" Because we know how that can be. Yes, and but that's it's not.
0: But it's not. It's not the first. I mean, we have Sandra Bland. Yeah, you know, the, the list goes on and on. There was, and I, and they I hate that Martin. I don't know this because there's so many. But there was a, a woman. There was a woman last week who was slept and was shot in her sleep. Was it, um, just recently Benton, this came to to light.
1: Yeah, Benton, or I think her last name was. Uh, yeah, it's Benton or something like that. That happened in Louisville, Kentucky, where the officers um, barged in. They were supposed to be serving a warrant to someone who wasn't even there. And so they barged in. I mean, you you know, the thing is when someone's coming at you with weaponry and, and you were asleep, what are you doing? What you're like, wait, what's happening? So, so people don't always act in their, in their right mind. They're scared. What, what do you do when someone's holding a gun to you and telling you, you know, stop and everybody's yelling and you can't hear and you can't process. I mean, that's, those are extreme cases, but I believe some of the things that we're talking about, and that we hope, that I hope we talk about here, are what leads up to those things—the the yeah. microaggressions that lead to the more egregious things that that we see—and that's where we really have to have to educate people, so you can stop before we even get to that place. And I should also add, you know what? I'm not, I'm not an educator. I'm not a a specialist in this at all. I'm a former journalist who happens to have been black for 57 years. And that's my, that's so you're my, a an, you're
0: a bit of an expert when it comes to being black in America.
1: Right. That's my expertise is, is having lived it. Yes. Um, so
0: let's go back then to that question about why is it so uncomfortable for white people to talk about this? Mm-hmm. So I'll give you, I'll give you an example of, of how I, I felt about Ahmed Arbery. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's disgusting. It's, it's heartbreaking. I can't, you know, it just, it makes me angry. My issue is how do I, how do I convey that as a white woman who does not understand what it must be like to be a black person in America? I don't want to be trite about it. I don't want to be, to be taken as, not meaningful, or I don't really, do you know what I mean? So there's that fear that sort of that trepidation that what I say is going to be uh, taken as condescending, maybe I'm not sure what do you like? So tell me, tell me what your view is of that.
1: Well, so I'm a big believer in just open, honest communication. And I think that when you come at something with an open heart, like like what you just said to me is perfect. What you said is, I know this happens, but I would like to hear from my friends who are black or or Asian or whatever. Like, could you just tell me a little bit like what your life is like and what this means and what does this, this has to be triggering. You know, I mean, however you want to say it, but as long as you're saying it with the spirit of, I really want to learn. So... um. I'm reading White Fragility now. You and I have talked about that. And I'm literally like 15 pages in and blown away. I believe that in the first 15 pages, she talks about exactly why these conversations are so difficult. Because specifically in this country, in America, built on that rugged individualism, people think that when you say something is racist, or they're racist, or that's a racist remark, they take that personally because they feel like, oh, well, you're calling me... Um, Candace or me, you know, you're calling me personally a racist. That's not what white fragility is about. It's about acknowledging that there was a system put in place where racist things happen and people are are able to benefit from that. And some people don't benefit from that. And so that's really what she's, and again, I'm only like 15 pages into it, but when she said it's the individualism versus the collective. I was like, yes, that's why I think people can't get past even the title of the book to read it.
0: Yeah, so, you know, there's lots of... There, you, I, I think that, you know, we're talking about that book and I understand a lot of white people are going to go, oh, and they're going to get their backup right away.
1: Exactly, and she say, talks
0: about that. And, mm-hmm. and they're going to say, well, I'm not, you know... I didn't I didn't have anything to do with slavery. I no. didn't I didn't, you know, I have black friends. I, you know, and it becomes very much about it yep. you feel it, they take it as an attack on them and it's not, but I also think the other flip side of that is there's this fear again that because if they, if they come out and say something that they might get attacked as, you know, a Karen or sit down Karen, you don't know. And honestly, I think Karen is the funniest thing ever, by the way. <laughs> I, I think that's, I love the whole term yeah. Karen, but you know, here we got a whole bunch of white people being offended about Karen now and, yeah. um, which is ridiculous. So yeah. I just, there's just so much there. So yes, where do you start with that without... But
1: I think you can say, like, if someone comes at you with, oh, what do you know? You, you, uh, you know, what do you know, Karen, or whatever you say? Well, listen, I'm actually coming to you because I actually want to know. But I also believe that there's a responsibility that is, you know, this book, White Fragility, talks about racism is a white person's problem. It was set up by white people. The whole idea that, you know, men, white men, and black people were you know, two-thirds or five, whatever it was, five-eighths or, of a human being or whatever. That was not something we set up. That's not something that slaves set up. That was something that was set up by, by white people. And as a result, what Malcolm Gladwell, your fellow countryman, talks about, actually, I take that back. It wasn't him. It was this guy named Andrew Seward, who I just finished reading a piece on. I shared it with you, too. But he was talking about the racial contract and that the racial contract is that there's, there are a series of unspoken things that go on in America regarding race. Like, on the one hand, we have all men are created equal. On the other hand, we know doggone well all men are not created equal. You know, on the one hand, everyone should be able to get an education but we know that's not possible. We know that's not what the reality is. So until we start addressing those disparities in the reality, then we're just really not going to go anywhere. We're going to have this thing where we all dance around and we try to, like, you know, at least you and I are having this conversation. There are a number of people who don't even want to talk about it. So those people are the ones who... This author of White Fragility says, you know, when she goes into an event that she's, you know, speaking at, you can see them come in. She said, the white people who have their backup, you can see them coming in the door. They have no desire to, because they don't want to have to admit that they were the beneficiaries of a system that was put in place that is unequal.
0: Yeah, you know, I think about language and how, we, you know, how words come about and sort of how they get overused. And one of my, favorite words that is overused is privilege Mm -hmm. i'll give you an example uh Mm -hmm. i did a radio interview recently with a food person who talked about you know pantry staples and she mentioned artichokes Mm -hmm. and somebody in the comments said that my privilege was showing because i was talking about artichokes and i thought oh for christ's sakes it's artichokes Mm -hmm. now we cannot translate artichokes to privilege where we right. can't translate privilege is, I will tell you right now, I am aware that as a white woman with blonde hair, mm-hmm. I have definitely had some privilege in my life afforded sure. to me on certain things. Mm-hmm. And I should be able to admit that without any, in any way saying that I'm not a worthy person. Mm-hmm. The yes. society is set up that way, unfortunately, that yes, I have been afforded some privilege. So it's on me to call it that.
1: But it's also, but it's also, privilege is, is a funny thing because you don't see it. Like privilege is like air. It's, you don't know it until it's not there. So, um, it's, it's, um, I'll give you an example too. I mean, and, and, you know, this is, well, this is not a great example, but, um, it's an example of what you don't know until you kind of don't have it. So I wrote this book called Good Enough Mother. And at one point I was talking about, you know, how a friend and I would every Friday night, you know, we would go meet in the pizza place and it had all these games and everything and tokens and we would spend, you know, $80 on wine and $20 on these tokens like every other, you know, Saturday night, just so we could have a time to to decompress. And I remember somebody said to me, wow, that's actually a lot of money. And, you know, not everybody can afford that. And that was the first time that I was like, you know what? You're right. That is a lot of money. And not everybody has that. But at the time, because I didn't know, my circumstance was what it was. I was a high-paid national news anchor. And uh, money wasn't really uh, an issue. So I wrote right from that. It went right through the publisher who's at a big publishing house on Madison Avenue. And nobody was the wiser. So that's where I think that privilege thing, it, it, it can be hampering for a lot of us because we don't know it. Now, white privilege, this is where people, again, get their back up. What you're talking about is that there are situations where you may have worked as hard as a person of color, but there weren't the barriers that, that were in place there. That's what white privilege means. It doesn't mean that you have more than someone else. It means that your color didn't hold you back. And that's the one thing people who bristle over white privilege just don't seem to understand. But again, we're you and I are talking about something that requires an enormous amount of self-awareness. So when you talk to people about race, the very first thing, it depends because some of them, they just immediately get their back up and you're not going to go anywhere. So you might as well just stop. And and that's sad. I feel sad for them. And, but there's this, that whole, well, I didn't have anything to do with this, you know. And so, where do you go from there?
0: Well, the, the, you know, the, again, there's literally you're not going to change people's minds on this. Seems to me, feels to me, like the last, oh, I don't know, decade in America, mm-hmm. this has become very tribal. Mm. Um, intense this mm. conversation and so there's two sides and you really can only be on one you can't have middle ground there's no gray areas it feels like there's you can't have conversation between these two sides mm. in america anymore it's a total breakdown and the two sides more do you know? with it's even more with this asshole trump running your country <laughs> I, I you know the fish rots from the head right? But it's not, not so. it, it's, it's, it's ignorant to say, this is just Trump.
1: Right. There right.
0: is a system propping
1: Trump up. But, and, and not just that, here's the other piece that people are not really understanding. And when you, this is the part, honestly, to me, that makes me the saddest, um, is that, you know, Donald Trump is not responsible for the, um, the the racism and the microaggressions and the increase in hate crimes and all that stuff, he, that stuff was there. It has been given license by a lot. He's been, he's given license to that kind of behavior and that kind of speech, which is why the number of hate crimes has gone up and all that stuff. That stuff has always been there. It's, it's a part of America's DNA, which I hate saying, but race is a part of, you know, this country's DNA. And that's why it's really going to take some work to kind of untangle it. But the election of Donald Trump did one thing, and it, well, you saw it, um, and you're seeing it now, is it unleashed a lot of anger, a lot of really angry people, and a lot of angry white men. And so if you really, like, think about it, you gotta go. What are they so angry about? The whole "Make America Great Again." What what is the what is the anxiety and the anger about that? Well, a lot of it is because they're not the majority anymore, or now it's minority majority, or will be. This country will be in the next say ten or fifteen years, if not sooner. Um, and so they're losing that that foothold. And so what we have now is a transfer of power in a, in the balance of power, and people aren't happy about it and they want to see it go back to the way it used to be. And then the people who say, listen, um, when you say those things, it's offensive. Oh, you're a snowflake. It's like, it's, it's they want to go back to this time when they could just say and do whatever they want. And that's not who we are as a nation. And we've, we've got to acknowledge the diversity and, and be respectful. I just can't stand the lack of respect. So the people that are very
0: hateful, very racist, Mm -hmm. they're the loudest.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. They're, they're also, uh, you know, the scariest. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you know, I think a lot of white people go, you know, they look at what's going on, they think it's horrible, and then they're terrified to wade in. Yeah, yeah. Because of those big loud voices that are a little bit scary.
1: Yeah.
0: And, I, and I'm not in any way saying because you live with this every day.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that I was, I was talking in one of these Facebook chats to someone and I was trying to explain how, again, in some of the reading that I've been doing, that it's not enough just to be against racism. You've got to be anti-racism. And what that means and what that looks like in practice is that when you are the, in a party, you're at a party and everyone there is white and someone says something off color, you have to figure out a way to say, Hey, you know, that's not cool or, or say whatever it is. That's anti-racism. Um, being against racism would just be walking away and going, God, what an asshole that guy was, but actually confronting them and saying, dude, why are you like this? I had no idea. Like I thought I, my friends were a little more high minded or, or whatever. Um, so that's, that's what really needs to happen now is, is that, We're going to all have to combat this in a way that using all of the tools we have in our arsenal. People like me, African-Americans who stand up and say that's racist, pretty soon people are like, oh, that's just Renee. She's just, everything is racist to her. But when someone else comes back up and says, you know what, That's, that's horrible, that's racist. Um, then there's, there's power and there's power in numbers. Then you have your allies coming in and saying, let me help out here. So yeah, I think that's the trick is how do you be, how do you, how do you shoot down racist things when you hear them, see them and how do you be an ally, an effective ally?
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think, you know, and and you can, that I, you know, when you're saying that, I I think about it in terms of how we talk about uh, being a woman and how we need men to speak up when things turn to locker room talk or, you know, cat on the street and things like that. So we do need, so we do need allies in that, in that fight as well. So same, same with yeah. racism.
1: Yeah. You know, also I wonder with a lot of my friends or people who are, you know, appalled by this kind of thing, these things that happen, oh, Armit Arbery or, or whatever. I just think to myself, like, are you guys, you know, do you have any black friends? That's what I always want to know. Okay, I want to know. So I thought yeah. about that mm-hmm. when I was out today before
0: we had this conversation. I was like, my worldview is pretty much shaped by, you know, I now, not to say I didn't have any black friends. I mean, I, I thought back to when I was a child and definitely I had Tracy and Sharice and they, I hung out with them all the time in the neighborhood and they. They moved away, so I didn't see them much longer, you know. And um, But my, my experience is I look at my friends, and they're mostly white. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it wasn't like I had a big field of, of mm-hmm. you know, people of color around me to draw from, to be honest.
1: Right, right, uh, right. That
0: sort of shaped my experience. So I think <laughs> – I mean, it sounds ridiculous. Like, what do I do? Just go now to to a person of color and say, be my friend? And (laughs) and you can't do that. But you're right. Like, I, I, um, I don't have a lot of people of color in my life that I have this, which is why I wanted to have this conversation with you.
1: Yeah. I think that's a really great point. And we need to figure that out. I mean, is it something that we do on Facebook and we gather, you know, a group of women who all want to be friends just because they want to learn about each other's culture or, or somebody who's different from you or something like that. I think there's definitely room and space for something like that. Outside of that, I feel like are, you know, how much volunteering do you do? What are the organizations you volunteer with? If you're, you know, volunteering with, I don't know if they have big brothers, big sisters, or any of those organizations that might tend to have more, I guess, client diverse clientele I would be um, I guess my 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 first recommendation but um, yeah and that's really also what we have to do is that we have to actually work at it Um, you know I live in when I lived in New York my neighborhood had maybe four or five black families maybe same thing you know I mean but I was and that's what what I try to make people understand that for me to wade into a white world is not as intimidating because that's what I've done my entire life. Mm -hmm. But for you to wade into a black environment is going to be different and you're going to be self-conscious. And I guess you just have to do it enough until you're not. And that's a hard thing too, you know, because people will be like, well, what is she doing here? or that sort of thing. Uh,
0: yeah, 100% right. I mean, you can't tell me that I, if I walked into a, a very predominantly black neighborhood that I wouldn't stick out like a sore thumb, and that question would be asked, right? Right, right, right. Um, so, yeah, there, there's, there's that as well that we have to address. Is, is, it shouldn't be unusual for me mm-hmm. to be there, and vice versa.
1: Yeah, and you saw what happened just the other day with this black delivery driver in Oklahoma who the two white guys, you know, it's shut him in. So he
0: Infuriating,
1: black. infuriating. So, so this harkens back to a time post-slavery when free blacks had to carry something that were called their freedom papers, right? So you had to, carry papers that would let let announce to people if you if they pulled you over or they found you or whatever you pull this piece of paper out and say yeah you know I'm actually a free black man and it's just this 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 kind of craziness like why the one guy who came up to him um after there were two men who were involved right and the second guy came up and said well uh you know what do you we just want to know your name and what you're doing here it's like what? Like this is 2020. But the crazy thing about this, Renee, is this is just,
0: this is just the shit that's caught on camera. I know. It's yes. Every day, multiple times a day, this is happening. It's, yeah. it's just, I, it's frustrating because it, it's, it shouldn't be. And it seems like the only time we're talking about it is when it gets caught on camera, but it really is just every single day.
1: Well, and then the other piece of this is, you know, now those are the most the most egregious things that we see and we've talked about. What we're talking about right now are the most egregious forms of race and racism and racial, you know, injustice. But then there's also what's known as microaggressions. And... That's what what the book White Fragility talks about. Also, she didn't use, I haven't come across her using microaggression yet, but she very well may. But what she's saying is that racism needs a broader definition. And I've been saying this for years, that people assume if they're not, you know, lynching people and lighting crosses on fire and hanging nooses from trees, that they're not racist. But they'll exercise a microaggression in a minute, and by microaggression, I mean those small sort of actions that are based on your view of African Americans. I know. I
0: know an exact. I can think of a perfect example that involves you, actually. Hmm. I remember when you were selling your home.
1: Yep. Yep. Yeah. So I was selling my house, and I lived in a very large, um, well-off home in Chappaqua, New York. And um, a realtor came up to me—not my realtor, but another one, the realtor for the buyer—and she comes to the door. And I had been having a bunch of stuff delivered and taken away, and there was a lot going on, so I didn't know who she was. And I, so I'm standing there in my um, in my Uggs and my big furry coat, which I like to call the Chappaqua housewife look. But everybody at it, and and she comes up, and I had just said goodbye to someone, and she walks up, and I said oh, hi, who are you? And she said, well, who are you? Just like that, like, who are you? And I was like, well, I'm the owner. And then she was like, oh, blah, blah, blah. Now, most people would hear that and say, oh, she didn't mean anything by it. That's what makes it a microaggression. It didn't even occur to her that I would be anything but the homeowner. She was like, well, you know, who are you? You must, like, who, at, at what time would you walk up to someone's house and they open the door and say hi and you say, who are you? Who would ever do
0: that? And that's the thing, Renee. I feel like people would say to you, oh, you're being too sensitive. Yeah, I couldn't
1: give two shits what people but think you, about but that.
0: But you're not, because I can see what you're saying. You're absolutely right. I want to give you an example of last night what happened to me in Walmart. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't been in nine weeks. <laughs> I was with this lockdown and you know things have changed in the shopping world Mm -hmm. and so I was going down an aisle and I what you know I wasn't paying attention and this older white man said to me oh honey you're going the wrong way Mm -hmm. oh and I said oh gosh look at that and I turned around and I started going the right way with the arrows Mm -hmm. fast forward a couple of aisles later there's a different old white man Mm-hmm. And I am now going down the aisle. I'm behind him. We're following the arrows, and there is a person of color and his family coming towards us. Now they're going the wrong way.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And this older white man was so rude mm-hmm. and so aggressive with this mm-hmm. person who was clearly struggling with English a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, it's a brand new world. The rules have changed. Like, be polite. Mm-hmm. I was really struck by the difference in how I was treated,
1: uh huh, uh
0: huh, and how this this person
1: of color was treated. Yeah, yeah, and maybe that that could be also attributed to the fact that there were two different men. Those were two different men. See, and for me, I always try to give people. But, that, the, benefit- but
0: the man who was giving the person of color a hard time turned around to me and said, "Dumb as bricks."
1: Oh, well, now that changes the story now, doesn't it?
0: Right. <laughs> so, so, so when what? I caught up with that family on the next aisle, I said to them, I am so sorry. That man was so rude. Uh, uh, you know, no reason for that. Yeah. But, you know, that's the kind of thing that, that happens, I think, all the time is, you know, I got this yeah. money from one guy and then this other guy gets, you know, this really right. ignorant response.
1: Yeah, you know, I, those microaggressions are those things that are really difficult to pinpoint and those things that people who don't want to address them. We used to just like, you know, why can't we call them that name? Because that's what we did when I was, but that's what a microaggression is. It's it's this. It's your sort of behavior based on something that you think you know about a certain population, or and it's not a good thing. Any black person can tell you about the time they were followed in a store. I mean, I remember when I was working at um, at CBS, and I had a, uh, I was shopping for clothes for the show, and here I am wandering around by myself, looking at all the stuff. This is like Bergdorf Goodman, and immediately. Uh, followed and until I, yeah, I produced my um, platinum American express card. And then they're like, Oh, Oh, okay. I guess you're, you know, but why does it take all that? Like, why do I, why do I need to do that? The thing about the guy in the um, in Oklahoma who had the two white men block him, block his truck in the thing that got me on that was how in an instant that could have been something else, how that could have turned deadly for this man who was just doing his job. And that is horrifying to me. It's so upsetting. And to hear him, even on tape, he was trying his best to stay calm. And like, but you could hear his voice shaking. When I, when I tell my own children that if you get pulled over or you get stopped by the police, that the first thing you do before you, you know, get your license of registration out is you set your phone down and then hit play record. Because there has to be a record. Now, who wants, that's our, real, that, that's our reality is that there has to be a record. That's all I think. There has to be a record. Think of where we would be right now if there wasn't a video of the Ahmed Arbery. And so, Ahmad Arbery. Yep. We'd we, we never know. So, so it's really I, frustrating. You,
0: I'm going to read White Fragility. And uh, there's a book that I recommend that I think everybody should read as well, and it's Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell, and he starts and ends with the story of Sandra Bland, mm. and uh, through that he talks about Amanda Knox and Sylvia Plath, and 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 Malcolm Gladwell is just a brilliant, and I'm just going to say it, Canadian mind, and uh, <laughs> I I absolutely adore him. I I read everything and listen to everything by him. I think he's incredible, but Talking to Strangers. Was a real, a real eye opener for me mm-hmm. in, um, in in race in America and how sort of how just one of many reasons why you are where you are in America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, it's a great read uh, because I think we misinterpret people a lot when we're talking yep. to strangers. Yeah, um, that's a really good read for sure. But I think the most important thing is not to be afraid to have these conversations like you and I are having yeah. right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, like I said, I was a little bit nervous having this conversation with you. <laughs> uh, and and not, not for fear of attack or anything, like I'm not yes. afraid of that. Um, but I just, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't want to, I think nobody wants to come across as insensitive Mm -hmm. Right. I want, but I think it's my responsibility to understand because like you just said, that man was just doing his job. That woman Mm -hmm. just sleeping.
1: That man was just out for a jog. Yeah. 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 I I mean, so do you feel, how do you feel now after having sort of talked about some of these things? I feel, you know, I think that,
0: yeah, I think that maybe I will be less reserved because, yes, I have been at those places where a joke's been made or something's been mm-hmm. said, and I walk away and go, what an asshole. Mm-hmm. But I don't say it in the moment.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And, you know, that is, that's not, things are not going to change. Yeah. they do.
1: You know, I, I'm always, I, I realize what a tall order that is to say that. So I teach a media communications course trying to help people be better public speakers. And one of the things that I tell people is, you know, practice, 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 practice. So in this instance where we know this could be a tense moment, I would practice what it is you are going to say so that it just sort of effortlessly comes off your tongue, like you're not afraid, you're not whatever. Just say, listen, dude, I kind of had thought." More of you or thought better of you I can't believe you wouldn't say something like that and you can say it it can be sharp it can be pointed and then you can turn and walk away or whatever but at least it comes out in a way that is how you It's it's uh, not complicated or convoluted you're clear as as water on this I think but, that's an excellent I think that's an excellent point is to is to practice that
0: response because right you are, it's one of those things, you know, you always think of that great response after. Right, right. Um, so if you're, you know, if you have that response before. Sure. Uh, and you're armed with that when you're, when you're faced with it in the moment, um, right. that, is, that is a very powerful tool to have. So I agree with you. I think that's great. And that's something that I will take away from this is, is to yeah. have that ready to go. Because you don't have to be cutting or abrasive. You can just be... You can even still say it with humor if you find the right way to say it, but enough that the point is made and it will shut them up.
1: Yeah. I, I'm not a, it takes a lot for me to be a confrontational person and I have a fuse that's a, you know, a hundred miles long, but when it's lit, you know, you better watch out because all hell is breaking loose. But, one of the things that, that I do is I let people make a couple of mistakes. And then the third one, I'm like, I, I just don't have time for this. So I think it's really a thing for you to be able to say, uh, you know, I'm like, I'm really curating the people that I want to spend time with. And those people who tell those kinds of jokes, that's not just a thing. That's actually who, what you believe. You think that's funny. Then I choose not to be around that. So I'm going to just go ahead and leave or however you want to say it. But I very much would tell people just like, you just got to, you know, have it ready to go and use it. So let's go back to the beginning when you asked that question on your Facebook page. Mm-hmm.
0: What was, were there some, was there anything said there that you went, ah, I didn't think of that. Or was did was pretty much what you expected.
1: It was pretty much what I expected. Um, whenever I talk about things like that, the people that I really want to hear from never answer. <laughs> I mean, I have a very progressive uh, group of friends, which I'm proud to say. The, I do have some people who used to watch me from television when I was a news anchor back in Texas or from when I was at CBS um, who don't really know me. They're not really my friends and they tend to lean you know, more on the conservative side. And I actually am more of like a, Libertarian, you know, I'm I'm kind of a I'm a fiscal conservative, but socially um, liberal. But the the people that I always want to hear from never never respond, and it's because of what we started this out talking about. They don't want to hear because they don't want the responsibility that they have, which is to try to make this better. But the most, for the most part, everybody was exactly what I thought. They're like, well, I'm not, I mean, I thought like, like your response was probably one of the more honest, which is, yeah, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to offend. And I think that that was the people who said, I am uncomfortable about talking about race. Really, that was their response. It wasn't because they were, um, you know, angry about it. It was because they were trying to be respectful and they didn't know how.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, I think sometimes I don't say things because I think, well, I don't want to, I don't want to come off like you know, because uh, like I'm appropriating or something like that. You know, like mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I want to make sure that I'm not making it about me in some way. Cause right. It's, it's just not.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, right, and, right. And
0: so I think that that is maybe the fear a little bit, and and so I think probably the best thing is to let go of the fear and mm-hmm. and allow allow myself and I guess others who want to learn more and know more and do better um, Mm -hmm. have these conversations, these ongoing conversations with people.
1: Yeah. And I think again, it's how you approach it. When you come in and you say, look, I, I'm going to just admit, I, I don't know anything about this, but I would like to know more is, you know, and, and I know a lot of people are, I have a lot of African American friends who are like, well, it's not my job to educate so and so on, so, such and such. But you know what? I actually do feel like when people, particularly my friends, are confused about something, I want them to be able to come to me and say, I, I didn't understand this. Can you, like, explain it, shed some light on this for me? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, again, it's not your job to make me feel better in all of this. <laughs> like, <laughs> No. <laughs> but but to have an honest discussion with me, I, I, I think that's the only way we can get through this is to have those discussions. And if it makes correct. me makes me a little uncomfortable or makes me realize of something I've done that's probably maybe not advanced um relationships, then yeah, then that's on me to correct, not you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think if if we were all just a little like we we all have to do better, period. We all have to do better. But right now there is little incentive in this country to do better because we have someone in the white house who is really bringing out the most base instincts of people. And it's really horrible to see. It's horrible to see. Um, you know, I, I, this summer I was in the Hague um, on a project and I worked with um, all these um, leaders of developing nations. It was a justice project. And they were all talking about like, the, we talked a lot about the rule of law and how to get justice in and how to meet out justice in these sort of very rural, very poor countries. And I just thought to myself, like, when they talk about the tribalism that is so great in those countries, I was like, it's here too. It's crazy. But that's where we are.
0: I know. It's horrifying. It's horrifying to watch, but it's also just, you know, we're not, we're not, I mean, I always laugh at the joke about, you know, we're the apartment above the meth lab.
1: (laughs) 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 But it's hilarious. But we're also,
0: we're also not immune. To these things. And so it's never, it's never good to get complacent and say these things yeah. don't exist here. Of course right. they exist here. Right, um, right, right. And so it needs to be, it needs to be addressed, um, you know, when you see it.
1: Yep. hundred percent.
0: Yeah. So thank you for joining me today and having this conversation. It was, you know, I didn't expect that it would be, um, Anything less than enlightening, mm-hmm. um, and I feel much better having had it now. And I hope that we'll continue the conversation. Absolutely, call
1: on me anytime. It's great to see you again. I'm gonna get that book, um, yeah.
0: agility, and um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna come back so we can maybe we'll get a group
1: together and we'll do. A well, group I discussion. just I literally just posted that that I want to do a I want to do a group discussion on this book. It's on so, it's my Facebook status. So what's your podcast, Renee? You know what. I actually, well, do I have one? I do have one, (laughs) but I haven't updated it in forever. Um, My my website is goodenoughmother.com. Okay. I have a podcast called How in the Hell Did I Get Here? And I, but I haven't updated it in a long, long time. So, because I really (laughs) wanted to talk about, you know, middle, middle age and midlife and how oh my God, that's a whole, that's a whole other podcast. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So anyway, so that's it. But my site is goodenoughmother.com. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much, Renee. Okay, Candace, Thanks. Bye. Bye.